Hey, what's up, everybody? This is Ray, and welcome to the RayWenderlich.com podcast. In this podcast, we'll keep you up to date with the latest app development tech talk. Now, here are your hosts, Drew and Jay. Thanks, Ray. This is the Ray Wenderlich podcast. Welcome to episode 10 for season 8. This episode was recorded on Saturday, the 10th of November, 2018. And this episode was sponsored by Skynet and the MCP, which I've been told is a Tron reference. I am Jay Strawn, here with my mic'd up and minimally auto-tuned season 8 co-host, Drew Freeman. Thanks, Jay. From the book Machine Learning by Tutorials, we have Chris LaPaolo and the RayWenderlich.com mainstay, Matthias Holman. Chris is an independent developer and consultant with over two decades of experience who's been focused on applications of artificial intelligence for the past few years. He helps clients put machine learning into production. He's currently writing chapters about sequences and natural language processing for machine learning by tutorials, but longtime RW.com readers might remember his tutorials introducing Unity 2D or the book iOS Games by Tutorials, which he also co-authored. He's really not a fan of social media and has never even got past entering his name on LinkedIn but you can find him on Twitter. Matthias is an independent consultant who specializes in deep learning on iOS. If you want to add machine learning to your app, he's the guy to talk to. And Matthias also writes a blog about machine learning at machinethink.net slash blog. And he's also the author of The iOS Apprentice and the upcoming Machine Learning by Tutorials. Both of them easily found on Twitter. And as always, you can go to the forum that's attached to the show notes for this episode. Gentlemen, thank you so much for joining us today. Hey, thanks for inviting us on your show. Yeah, thanks for having us. Now, I know we've touched on machine learning this season, and we touched on it last season, and there's always new tech coming out of Apple from WWDC. But it's always good for, for new listeners, for people who are still just trying to wrap their head around it. How do we talk about what machine learning is? Can you give me the, the 40,000 bird's eye view first? Machine learning basically means using data and algorithms to train software to do something rather than having a person coding all the logic directly. Uh, so let's say you wanted to write a function to take some input values and produce some output. You normally use things like if statements, for loops, whatever. But with machine learning, you could try building that function by taking a bunch of examples of input-output pairs and feeding them into an algorithm that can learn its own rules for producing the correct outputs. Uh, I'm definitely leaving out most of the details, uh, but that's a general idea. Having a simple answer is a great approach. I mean, it, it gives us that first concept of, okay, so you know, we're not writing the code to get the output. We're letting the computer figure out now, can you talk about the concept of the, of the inputs and the outputs and what that actually means? Well, the inputs and outputs all depend on the problem, right? So computer vision works with pixels from images. Speech recognition processes audio. Uh, natural language problems deal with text. Uh, robots look at data from different types of sensors like LiDAR and radar. So I guess the easiest answer is uh, if a computer has access to it, then you can probably use it as input to a machine learning algorithm. Now, data in the real world is messy. Uh, it comes in all sorts of formats, has errors, it's noisy. So anything you can do to help clean that up and standardize it can improve your model's performance. That's why we usually do some pre-processing steps rather than passing raw data into a model, uh, normalizing values, converting types, that sort of thing. 
like images might need to be a certain size and in a specific color space before using them for computer vision. And non-numerical data like text usually needs to be converted into numbers because most algorithms right now are doing a lot of math behind the scenes. So they can't really work directly with symbolic data like that. For outputs, models usually produce some number or a bunch of numbers and we interpret those differently for different applications. It might be the likelihood that an image contains a particular type of object. Uh, it could be the next move to take in a game or a prediction of tomorrow's weather or an image or text or audio or really anything that a function could output is theoretically possible with machine learning. I should stress theoretically. It's not currently the best solution for every problem. It's probably best suited for situations where we have a lot of data or we can simulate a lot of data and we know that data actually applies to some problem. That fits important, it has to be applicable. And it's difficult for us to come up with a set of rules that we can actually code up to use that data to solve that problem. Like with vision, it's difficult for you to explain why you think a picture is of a cat and not a dog. Uh, you just sort of know what dogs and cats look like, right? But you can't really articulate the details. And even if you could, computers don't even really see images. They see a big grid of numbers. So I'm guessing it'd be even more difficult for you to look at a grid of numbers and come up with a set of rules mm -hmm. that reliably distinguishes between you know numbers that equal cats and numbers that equal dogs, right? So machine learning helps with those types of problems. Uh, we have a lot of pictures of cats and dogs, so we can train a model with examples instead of having to come up with a specific set of rules. So the model is basically that concept of we've given you so much data and we We've, we've basically hit the back of your hand when you get it wrong and, and you eventually begin to figure out for the data we've presented you so far, you know, this is the preferred answer. Uh, yeah, absolutely. That's called supervised learning, uh, where you train the model with sample inputs along with the correct outputs. And then you let the model guess an answer for each input. And if it gets it correct, great. And if it gets it wrong, it calculates how wrong the answer is. And this is where we get into the math involved, but it basically figures out how wrong the answer is and then adjust its settings a little bit so that if it saw those same inputs again, it, it should return a slightly better answer, something that's closer to correct. And you do that for lots of examples many, many times. And eventually, if everything works out, it gets to a point where it's returning correct answers often enough to make you happy. In machine learning, it sounds like the machine is still kind of doing what you tell it to. It's not like it's learning itself, really, or um, creating or, or thinking, oh, that's a dog because uh, I should look at the ears to know that. You're telling it to do that. The computer does do what we tell it to do, but we never actually tell it to do that. When we say machine learning, we're really talking about a family of optimization algorithms. Uh, so, so the learning algorithms themselves are written by people and the computer just executes the instructions like it would running any other program. But those algorithms aren't designed to recognize cats and dogs or anything like that. Uh, they actually just find good coefficients for math functions, huh. basically. Like the equation for a line, y equals mx plus b. If we have a bunch of examples of xy pairs, then we can easily calculate values for m and b, right? Training something like a neural net is similar to that, uh, but we're finding values for a lot more numbers in a more complicated function. Or I shouldn't even say that. It's not actually that much more complicated. It's still mostly a lot of additions and multiplications uh, with a few other things now and then, but there's just a lot of it. So it's more than what a person could ever do. Like, like if you have a 200 by 200 pixel image of a dog and, and it's in color, like RGB, so each pixel is actually made up of three values for red, green, and blue. 
if you use that image with a machine learning algorithm, each of those values would be treated as an input. So, so that little 200 by 200 image has math, math, 120,000 input values, right? That's a lot of numbers for one tiny image. And then inside the model itself, there are a bunch of more numbers. So in the end, you have what's essentially a massive math function filled with thousands or even millions of these coefficients like M and B from the line equation. And by the way, in machine learning, we call those coefficients weights. So training a model to recognize cats really means calculating a good set of weights for the function f of x equals cat, where that x input represents the pixels of an image. It's funny that you mentioned ears on dogs, uh, because when researchers analyzed the weights in a trained image classification model, it turns out the model actually did learn weights that focused on dogs' ears more heavily than other things. So apparently that's a really helpful feature for identifying dogs, but the model figured that out on its own just by trying different weights. No one ever told it that would be a good thing to focus on. This feels wonderful, because I remember in elementary school, my teacher yelled at me or my, my middle school when I wrote down f of x equals cat. She said, no, it doesn't work that way. <laughs> who knew I who knew I was ahead of the ahead of the curve there? So I I'd like to point out something. And so Chris said this is supervised learning. And so the key here is that if you want to make something that can tell the difference between cats and dogs, you don't just give it a bunch of pictures and let it figure it out for itself. But you have to say these five pictures are cats and these five pictures are dogs. So you do have to give it a hint of what it is supposed to learn. And that's the key to this type of machine learning is that it, 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 it doesn't really know how to figure out stuff unless you tell it what it should figure out. Does it help if you, uh, if you give it sort of difficult pictures? In other words, it is a dog even though it looks like a cat? I mean, does that help the situation? Does that obfuscate it? I think it's important to um, try and confuse it. Because, um, and I'm kind of jumping ahead now, I think, but there is a big problem in machine learning and that's called overfitting. And what that means is that your machine learning model isn't really learning what a cat is or what a dog is. It's just remembering all the training images that you gave it. So if you then test on an image of a cat and it has seen that image, it knows that, oh, I've seen this image before, that's a cat. But it hasn't really learned what a cat is. And so by giving it a lot of data and maybe also even slightly confusing or, or ambiguous data, you can help to prevent situations like that where it starts to remember specific examples. And uh, But I have to say, it's training these models is really a, a, a bit of a black art, black magic, because... Um, the theory is quite simple. The math behind it is quite simple. But to build models that really work well in practice, that really takes a lot of um, experience and sort of knowing uh, what sort of data you need to use and so on. So Now, uh, I know that machine learning has now been growing very quickly in the past few years on, on Apple's platforms. And uh, we talked about the fact that it's just a lot of math. And I'm assuming that that's predominantly, and having done a, a show of metal recently, that it's the the concept of having us better and better GPUs to do that kind of hard um, parallelized math computational work. GPUs have been very important for deep learning. And that's when we talked about um, models that can deal with images, cats and dogs, and much more complicated kinds of images. That's something, uh, a technique called deep learning. It's a sp very specific type of machine learning, uh, but it's very successful. And GPUs, because they are fairly cheap 
and they give you a lot of computational power uh, for doing things in parallel. That has been really great for the advancement of deep learning in the past few years. But now we've come to a point where um, people start to create special chips. And so the iPhone 10s and the new iPads, they have these A12 chips with a neural engine, which is a specific chip for machine learning that is much faster than the GPU. And the reason is, it's, very, it's a very simple reason for this. And that is, it's just specific hardware for fixing or for solving a specific problem. And pretty the problem that they solve is pretty much uh, the problem of um, big matrix multiplications. The CPU originally the central processing unit, and the GPU became eventually a graphic processing unit. It was specifically a stylized CPU for graphics because it could handle that problem better, and then we found another way to do it. This is effectively, you said neurally, it's effectively an NPU, which is it's another processing unit specifically designed for the problem. Yeah, it's a it's like a coprocessor, like the GPU, that's dedicated to solving one specific problem. And Apple's not the only one that has this kind of technology. Google has something called the TPU. It's called the Tensor Processing Unit. Um, uh, Intel has something like this. And a lot of other companies are also building chips for this. So right now, NVIDIA is still the uh, the leader in machine learning hardware because, you know, they have the GPU. So... Um, they sort of they build on that and they try to make as much of that as possible. But a lot of other companies are now trying to get into the game with their own technology, uh, specifically for solving these deep learning problems. And it's really nice to have that uh, special hardware for solving these problems because it just makes it much more uh, feasible to do this sort of thing on mobile phones now. One of the things is, uh, and we talked about this in the Metal Show, that GPU prices are still going up right now, but that's also because you get a lot of competition from the cryptocurrency world. But by having an actual carve-out for this problem in a different chip, that makes the competition there lower. You don't necessarily have that same price issue, or you don't have that currently being attacked by another field. I, I'm at least, at least, I'm assuming. Yeah, sort of. Uh, for Apple's NPUs, you can't buy them separately. They just live inside Apple products, uh, and they aren't really designed for the research community anyway. Um, Google doesn't sell its TPUs either, but you can at least run on them in the cloud. So you could, you can compare prices against running on cloud instances with GPUs. Uh, but if you want to buy something yourself to build your own machine, uh, I think GPUs are still the primary option. So going back to the concept of, of putting together the uh, the inputs and such, I've always had the impression that the difficulty in some of the more complex estimations or computer learning has been from having too many variables to judge to put together adequate inputs. The old one from when I was a kid was somebody trying to put together a program to predict horse racing. <laughs> um, now you could say watching poker players, that there's just too many inputs to consider and we don't have that. And that's where the natural limitation of this is. Is that accurate? I want to hear more about this childhood you spent trying to come up with algorithms to bet on horse races. <laughs> uh, okay. Uh, machine learning 
shines actually when there are more features than people can get their heads around. It's great at finding patterns and connections that people can't see. Uh, but the number of input features we use definitely does matter. Uh, there's this concept called the cursive dimensionality, which refers to a couple of different things actually, but basically points out that as your number of features grows, you're moving into higher and higher dimensional space. And so the size of the data set needed to properly train a model grows exponentially with the number of features. In reality, I'd say different algorithms are better or worse at dealing with large numbers of features. Uh, neural networks in particular are pretty good at it uh, because they tend to reduce the feature space down where each layer in the network is sort of transforming the data into a new feature space. But even with those, I think it's still a good idea to reduce the number of input features uh, if you know you can. I guess more along the lines, what I was suggesting is it's hard for us to know what all the data for the inputs might be. We may forget something or not realize something that does affect the problem in a way that we haven't necessarily added in. Uh, for example, with the horse races, knowing how a horse does on a specific weather or a track, you know, there, there are just so many data points that we may miss something that affects the thing from being actually accurate in the long run. Okay, sorry. Um, this is really where domain expertise comes in. It's best to have someone who actually knows about the problem and what data might be or should be relevant for it. Um, we can do what's called feature engineering, which is figuring out from the data you have what features are useful and, and maybe even creating new, more useful features by combining or transforming existing ones. Uh, that can help a lot with model performance. But if you want to do something like diagnose diseases from chest x-rays, you, you could just throw a neural net at some images and hope for the best. Uh, but you should probably be working with radiologists and specialists to make sure you're actually looking at the right data and your model is interpreting it correctly. Yeah, and if, if you don't have the data to begin with, you can't really do anything with it, of course. So like you said, if we don't have, if we miss a data point that's important for making a decision, obviously no algorithm or machine learning system is going to uh, magically fix this for you. But there's another uh, danger, and that's that you have too much data that's misleading. Um, and usually machine learning algorithms, as you train a model, they can figure out what's important and what isn't. But there are some well-known anecdotes about systems that um, learn the wrong thing. So uh, there's this one story about a machine learning uh, model that was trained to detect uh, tanks, the, the existence of military tanks in images. And this was some system used for the military. And I don't think the story is actually true. But what it came down to is that uh, they trained it to detect whether there were like tanks hidden in the tree line, like with camouflage and so on. So it, it would be a way for them to spot whether enemy tanks were, uh, were present in photos. And they, they, they trained it and they tried it out and it, it worked fine. And then they tried it on real data and it didn't work fine at all. And what it came down to was not that the model had learned to uh, detect whether tanks were present or not, but somehow all the pictures uh, of the tree line with the tanks that they had used for training were taken on a, on a sunny day and all the pictures of the tree line without tanks were taken on a cloudy day. So basically their model had just learned to tell the difference between sunny weather and cloudy weather. So it had picked up on totally the wrong thing to learn from the data. So there was there was information in this in these training images like you know the state of the weather that was totally not uh, useful to solving the problem at hand. So you want to have the the right kind of of 
uh, input data for your problem. Not too much, but also not too little, of course. Yeah, I always tell people with machine learning and especially deep learning, uh, your model is going to learn something. You know, if you give it this data to look at, it's going to find some pattern in it and learn something. It, it just might not have anything to do with what you actually wanted it to learn. So you do have to be careful about that. At this point, it probably is a good thing to try to figure out what people are doing with this to get a better, more concrete view. So what we'll do is we'll take a little bit of a break. We'll come back uh, quickly and then we'll talk more concretely about some of the projects that you folks have worked on and that other people are working on to get a, a feel for how the industry is changing and growing. talking about machine learning and training models, but now let's talk about some more practical applications of machine learning. What are some common reasons that companies are jumping on this hype train of using uh, ML, using artificial intelligence? Is it all about making predictions? Well, I think one reason so many people are jumping on it is the fear of missing out, right? <laughs> Everyone else is jumping on it, so they feel like they have to. That's fair. And I think that's the primary reason that everybody jumps on something that's a good buzzword. Our company is fully buzzword compliant. But really, I think everyone sees that there are so many possibilities for what we can do with it. And let's be honest, for most companies, it's about how much money they can make with it. Uh, examples. Um, websites that have some kind of recommendation engine, like Netflix and YouTube, that's machine learning. Voice assistants and self-driving cars involve multiple AI systems. Google used machine learning to reduce its power usage for cooling their data centers by, I think it was 40%, which is great for the environment, but also great for the company, right? Those bills aren't cheap. I read about a warehouse for a store in China that handles 200,000 packages a day with only four people working there. I think their jobs just involve looking after all the robots that are rolling around the place. Amazon now has Amazon Go, which are these experimental grocery stores where shoppers can walk in, pick up whatever they want off the shelves and walk out. And their account just gets built automatically because things like computer vision are keeping track of what they take. I'm going to restrict my answer to iPhones and specifically to iPhones with cameras, which is all iPhones, because that's one of the primary reasons people use their iPhone, to take pictures and selfies and stuff like that. And one of the um, main things that deep learning is good at is computer vision tasks. And computer vision is a whole set of techniques for extracting information from images. So basically computers understanding images. And previously to deep learning, people try to do this sort of thing. Um, you know, there's a big, computer vision is a big academic uh, research field. There's lots of stuff that people have discovered over the years uh, to do in computer vision. Uh, but it's really deep learning that really gave it a big boost and made a lot of things much more, a lot of things just got much better results because of this. And that's one of the main reasons I find that companies want to do deep learning on iPhones, just to do th stuff with photos, stuff with videos. And you, could, you can't really do that with the older computer vision techniques because techniques, they're just not as good. So now the uh, iPhone, it's recognizing the people. It's being able to build up the faces and say, this is that person. 
I think it's also reading emotional state, but on top of that, it's also doing all of the color and light balancing, and is, I'm assuming the ML is also being used for the things like the, the portrait now, where you blur out the second and, and build that, that layer mask. Well, Apple, actually, they recently purchased a company from Denmark. This came out earlier this month, the news, but it happened last year already. And I talked to these people uh, before, uh, just informally, and... Uh, I know that they were building this thing for doing what's called segmentation, where you can, it's basically background removal from pictures. And I don't know this for a fact, but it seems reasonable to assume that, you know, since Apple bought this company, that they built their technology into the iPhone because their technology specifically was very good at doing things like hair. Because if you have a photo of someone and uh, you can sort of, it's pretty easy to detect where like the, the general body shape is, but the details, that's where it gets important, especially hair and things like fingers and so on. That's that's tricky because you need to work with really, you know, really fine details. And that's a company they happened to have bought last year that had that sort of technology. They used a lot of machine learning and computer vision. So it's it would be silly for them to not build it into the phone. So I have no doubt that they have similar technology, you know, in the camera, in the Photos app, and they're just going to buy more of these companies that have interesting technologies related to it and just all build it into their phones because, you know, it's uh, you need machine learning to achieve those effects. Okay. Apple's new devices are using two cameras, so they can actually calculate depth information, and that helps for that portrait effect. But as a fun project, you could train your own model at home to blur backgrounds and then apply that effect to photos you've already taken. Yeah, but it's also not as good with the details because I've actually been doing this recently for some uh, some clients, and it's really tricky to get the details right because, um, you know, a lot of these machine learning models, especially the computer vision ones, they work on very small images relatively small images, like 200 by 200 pixels. And if you have a photo, that's easily, you know, 10 times wider and, and higher than that. So you lose about, you know, details that are, you know, all the details get shrunk down, you know, by a factor 10 as well. So um, it's like Chris said, you can build these models yourself, but to do it really well, that's where, you know, that's where the tricks come in. And that's where, those are things are that are very valuable because companies like Apple and Google and Microsoft and Amazon and so on, they're all buying up startup companies that work on these specific techniques. So it's a very valuable thing, very, very valuable technology to have these days. Yeah. I always uh, tell people if you're, if you're looking to develop something, there's always that exit strategy of get bought by Apple and have fun <laughs> from there. Um, I, I, I have a non-traditional face so to speak and as much as i've got the balding head on top and i've got the santa claus beard on the bottom and i do see that when i'm doing portrait shots my hair tends to be a bit confusing to the algorithms and i guess that may again be the concept of we take a look at most people's heads and there's a general view of hair there's a general view of beard and and i'm assuming the further you deviate from whatever the teaching model was the more likely you're going to cause problems. Yeah, absolutely. Um, when you're training a model, it's learning to look for details that it finds useful. And later when you use your model, it 
only works if it sees similar details, right? It's kind of like how you can read text in different fonts, even if it's one you haven't seen before. The, the letters might look a bit different, but they're similar enough that you still recognize them. But then if you come across a really stylized font, you sometimes have to stare at it for a long time trying to figure out what it says. You know, that's probably because the letters look too different from what you're used to. So you're having trouble finding those key details that usually help you recognize them. That's why it's important to train with data that's diverse enough to actually cover the types of inputs that you want to support, in this case, faces. Uh, but that also doesn't mean Apple didn't include beards in their training data. If you have a training set where the number of examples are proportional to the actual population, then non-bearded faces, non-bearded, is that a word? Um, not sure, let's go with it. Non-bearded faces would be the majority of images, right? So in that case, the model might still become biased towards recognizing non-bearded faces because focusing on them might improve its overall accuracy more than getting better on the bearded faces would. On the other hand, just adding extra images of beards might not fix the problem either because getting better on those images might hurt its performance on the non-bearded faces. And since they're the majority of the real world cases, the models overall real world performance might go down. You know, so when you're building models, you might have to make choices like this. You know, do you want to improve the performance a lot for some people while slightly degrading it for most people? Or do you want to improve it for most people at the expense of much worse performance for some people? I'm not advocating for any particular choice. I'm just saying that you do make choices when you're building your models and those choices do affect people down the line. You know, like Mike Matthias has pointed out, Getting machine learning models to work really well is not always as easy as you might first think it will be. Yeah, I know via face recognition, my systems work very, very well for me. But when it comes to things, now this is getting off of uh, ML and more into uh, into more of the AR stuff and recognizing for emojis or recognizing for face ID. That's where I tend to confuse the system. I fail more often than uh, I would assume most. But I do like the fact that that really does come down, or I don't like the fact, but I think it's good to acknowledge the fact that there is uh, a bias in input data is, or a bias in model data is always going to inevitably taint the final produced model, which effectively in its own way says, well, it's hard to teach a computer when there's always going to be human error. Those face ID problems you're having might be more engineering related. I know it uses a infrared depth camera that they say maps like 30,000 points on your face. So maybe that big fluffy beard of yours actually physically affects the mapping process somehow. I'm just speculating, but it wouldn't surprise me if the problem there goes beyond machine learning. But regarding the bias thing, the scary thing is many companies and governments seem to be working under the impression that algorithms are somehow more reliable than people are. Uh, I guess because they think they're working on pure data and not emotion or bias. But in reality, rather than eliminating bias, algorithms amplify it. So even a seemingly small thing, once it's enforced by an authoritative algorithm, um, it, it can it can grow into a major problem, right? And then if you're denied a mortgage or insurance coverage because the algorithm said so, and there's no way for you to request a review of that decision, we're gonna have serious problems. I'm sure I'll misremember some details, but there was a police department using an algorithm to prioritize who they should do random stops on or something like that, suspicious locals kind of thing. And one of the features it used 
used from the police database was whether or not a person had had run-ins with the police. And if so, how many? You know, the, the, the more you had, the more the algorithm assumed you were up to no good, right? So at some point, it would re- recommend they stop someone, uh, which would then be recorded in the police database, which would then be considered a run-in with the police, which meant next time the algorithm was even more convinced they were up to no good. So it would recommend they get stopped again. And it was a vicious cycle where once it decided to target someone, it used that decision to validate later decisions to target them again. The algorithm became more and more sure of itself using you know, really nothing more than a bias it had created itself with its own recommendations. The, the computer isn't flawless. The computer's going to make, the computer's going to show you the mistakes you made big and clearly. Right. It reminds me of that story recently that Microsoft made a, a bot to try and get, recommend people's resumes so that they didn't need to have a person read through every resume. And what it did was it just ended up teaching itself to look for buzzwords, which is kind of what an HR person would do anyway. So it uh, wasn't really worth their time. I think it was Amazon who earlier this year tried to use machine learning to review resumes for good candidates. It ended up learning to reject any resume that included names of women's colleges or women's sports teams or basically anything that indicated the candidate was a woman. That's because it was trained on Amazon's historical hiring data, uh, which definitely is skewed male, right? So most likely the easiest way to score well on their validation metrics when they were training was to focus on the details in the male resumes. Yep. So again, algorithms amplify bias. Um, what started out as a situation with fewer resumes from women turned into an algorithm that wanted to reject all resumes from women. Yeah, and this especially happens when you blindly rely on algorithms to make decisions. So as long as machine learning works together with a human being to sort of verify what happens or it just as as something that assists a human being to make decisions, then you at least have some sort of oversight. But if you just blindly start applying machine learning to everything and automatically making decisions based on it, that's when you really run into, you know, these situations where you don't really know what it's doing or what it, whether it's doing is fair and correct and so on. And that actually one one area of research right now is how can we make these machine learning models explain why they made certain decisions. So you can actually if you train something like a um, a model that can detect the differences between cats and dogs, you can actually sort of look into it and get an idea of what it does, what it looks for. Because ultimately, it's it's a pattern matching system, so you can sort of get an idea of what sort of patterns it looks for, like uh, like what Chris said earlier. Uh, for dogs, it tends to look at the shape of the ears, um, but it's still that's a lot of work, and you can't really get a nice interpretable in- explanation out of most models. So, if we start using these models for making automated decisions in all kinds of areas of life, we also need to have some way to actually double check that these models, uh, you know, why are they making these decisions and do we think these are good decisions? And so that's actually a very active area of research because, you know, a lot of researchers in the uh, machine learning and AI communities, they do realize that these are drawbacks of using machine learning. So it's interesting to see how that develops. So it's basically, we don't have an audit trail of why answer. Yeah. And there are some techniques for this. Um, I don't really understand them fully myself, so I can't really you know, give you an explanation of how this works. But yeah, there's, um, I think you can sort of make machine learning models that explain like why they did something or that you can sort of trace it back. Like, 
you know, why did you make this decision? And some, some algorithms, like a decision tree, you can actually look into what the algorithm has learned and why it makes certain decisions. But most machine learning algorithms, they're just a big bag of numbers. And we don't really know what these numbers mean. We, we know what the math is, and often the math isn't really that complicated, but it's just trying to follow the trail of input data back you know, all the way through a model to the final prediction. That it often involves like millions of numbers and millions of computations, and there's no way that would make sense to the human brain. Well, inevitably, anything that, you know, any system you're debugging, if you have to go through a black box, then you have not debugged the entire system. Uh, so inevitably, as long as there is a, a stop along the path of these this data, that black box itself is going to be a potential fault center. But I think it's possible to prove to ourselves how reliable an algorithm is uh, by testing it. You know, give it inputs and see what you get. If you're happy with the results, it's a good model. Uh, if not, figure out a way to fix it. Obviously, the more important the decisions, the more rigorously we should test it. An AI that plays a video game is one thing, but one that's controlling a car moving down the street is something very different. Take Google Translate. You can find various anecdotes online about it making incorrect translations. You know, some are funny, some are sexist. It's definitely not perfect, and they should keep working to improve it and fix issues like those. Uh, but it's still better than translation software has ever been. And people are using it to communicate every day. And it's built on top of unexplainable neural networks. I mean, language translation has, over the last decade alone, gone miles. I remember, uh, I believe the old joke uh, in the late 90s was to translate Kokad's life to Japanese and then back again would come back from Google Translate as uh, Coca-Cola resurrects your dead ancestors. <laughs> we, we talked about the, the idea that we don't have the ability to describe necessarily how a human makes decisions. And, you know, inevitably, when you ask somebody, why did they make the decision? They're, of course, going to say their gut. Is there any kind of machine learning where people actually put in some kind of randomized function to say, okay, this, I need to represent that, that 50, 50% chance where I've got to make a decision. Does anybody do that kind of research? Oh yeah. There are a lot of algorithms in AI that revolve around probability, like BayesNet. Um, with machine learning, I'd say any generative models, uh, where they try to produce something new like text or music or images, those all involve some randomness. Uh, if you don't include any in those sorts of models, then their outputs become too repetitive. And there's also quite a bit of randomness involved during the training process of many models. So training multiple copies of the same model with the same data might still produce different results. And that's another reason why it's always a good idea to train multiple models and compare them to find the best one. And now that I think about it, classification models aren't returning this is a cat or this is a dog uh they return a probability distribution across all possible outputs it's not so much random but it is kind of like it's guessing with every response you know it's saying i don't know i see a cat with 0.68 probability and a dog with 0.32 probability and you know it's up to you when you're using the model to decide what kind of threshold you know you want to accept to say all right i think it's confident enough in its guess that i'm willing to accept it sees a cat so basically we move from artificial intelligence into artificial emotion i wouldn't go that far <laughs> <laughs> but you know randomness and algorithms isn't anything new uh We've been doing that since the beginning of time, you know, like 19, uh, 
the 1940s. <laughs> I, I thought the beginning of time was 1970, January 1st, but go, no, go ahead. But, uh, you know, something like, uh, like a quicksort algorithm, it's, it's been shown that if you choose certain things at random, it actually, you know, on average, performs optimally, even though sometimes it, it will be slower, sometimes it will be a bit faster. But on the whole, it, it will perform optimally, optimally. So using randomness in computers, uh, in algorithms, isn't really that new. You know, it's a technique that's actually been proven outside of the area of machine learning as well. So um, it's not so strange that there are machine learning algorithms that use, use this amount, you know, use a certain amount of randomness to make their decisions. If we train machine learning models, we start out with a model, you know, a model is just a whole bunch of numbers that are connected to each other in some way. And we start out with random numbers. And actually it turns out that choosing the, the, the numbers properly, you know, like uh, from the right sort of random probability distribution is important, but they're still random numbers. So we start out from something that's totally random to, to build these models. And um, that doesn't mean that the model itself makes random decisions, but it does often does involve a certain amount of probability. It really clarifies things. It's yet again another technology I just want to dive into until I have to start recording our next show. Nonetheless, Chris, Matthias, thank you so much for being available. I know, Matthias, in your case, you're several time zones across from us, but we really appreciate all the information and your time. And we definitely will be looking deeper into machine learning and talking about these technologies as they change. Obviously, come June, who knows what Apple's going to throw at us even further. Guys, thank you once again for making the show today. My pleasure. Yeah, and thanks to the both of you. It was fun. But that's going to wrap things up for this episode of the Ray Wenderlich Podcast. We'll be back again in a few weeks with yet another episode. For my partner in crime, who will be watching the movie Tron at some point, Jay Strawn, I'm Drew Freeman. We head back to the Emerald Castle. Ray, back to you. And that's a wrap. Thanks again, everybody, for listening to the RayWenderlich.com podcast. We hope you enjoyed it, and don't forget to leave a rating on iTunes. See you next time.